This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 365, July the 5th, 1996. This evening, Douglas Murray, Andrew Sandlin, Mark Rush Dooney, and I will discuss the subject of debt, D-E-B-T. Paul Biddle is not with us tonight, but is in the Midwest for the summer, after which he will probably relocate in Nevada. Now, the subject of debt is one that we did consider a few years ago. Very important subject. Briefly, to touch on the high point of our subject and our discussion then, it was that the Bible does forbid long-term debt. Debts are limited to six years and no more. This means that, combined with the fact of a hard money requirement, gold and silver, money by weight, just weights and just measures shall you have, is what the Bible requires. This meant that biblical society could not have an inflationary situation as long as they obeyed God's law. You did not have long-term debt, and therefore everyone had to be thrifty in order to accumulate the wherewithal to buy what they wanted. Now, what makes debt, again, a very, very urgent subject for consideration is the fact that beginning with the 80s, we entered into a new phase with regard to debt. The liberals have been very prone to saying that uh, the 80s were a time of greed and uh, <coughs> of blaming the Republicans for what happened when actually the Democrats have maintained the same policy. <coughs> and we have the policy because business and the American people want it. It is long-term debt, more debt than ever before. Debt as the solution to everything. I do believe it is producing a kind of irrationality in uh, American life. The July 1996 Reason magazine, libertarian, very much given... <coughs> to classical economics, nonetheless has a long article by a Hudson Institute thinker deriding the concept of a balanced budget. Now, I would agree that we're not going to get one, that uh, Congress is not likely to enact one, and that if they do it is meaningless, just as the balanced budget measure passed at the beginning of the 80s in the Graham-Rudman bill because when a state calls itself sovereign, 
as we have for some years, especially since the New Deal. It means that it is the maker of the law, but beyond the law. You cannot legislate for a sovereign. No more than anyone in the Middle Ages could demand a law governing the king can anyone in the modern age pass a law that governs the sovereign. The problem today is the Constitution means nothing. It's like uh, silly putty. It can be molded to mean anything the court wants. And the court is busy doing that. And the reason is the Constitution can no longer bind the United States because as a sovereign nation we cannot be bound by anything. That is, our Congress and our courts are free as sovereign powers to make whatever they, law they want. The reason article never says how are you going to get along with no balanced budget, with endless deficit financing, which the author somehow sees as good. But that illustrates the problem. A book was published a few years ago, the author George <coughs> Anders, and the title is Merchants of Debt. The thesis of the book is that since the early 80s and increasingly with each passing year, we have a world of business that is dedicated to buyouts in order to increase its debt capacity, is head over heels in debt and regards debt as a good thing. Unlimited debt, apparently. At the same time, since World War II, we've had a shift in capitalism. R.E. McMasters has described what we have now as debt capitalism. Well, it has meant that progressively every group in the economy is living off the state, off the taxpayer. The August 1996 Reader's Digest has an article, We Can't Afford Corporate Welfare by T.J. Rogers, a devastating article. It goes on to describe how major corporations have gone to the federal government to get money to wipe out their smaller competitors, as in the computer industry, and as in many, many others. He describes how Congress is subsidizing any company maintaining a U.S. office and shipping commodities, and many of these are by owned by foreign groups. They are foreign-born corporations, the article says, a French multinational, Louis Dreyfus, for example, has collected nearly $1 billion from American taxpayers. Eleven Japanese firms get a total 
of $393 million. It cites some of the uh, things last year that went to McDonald to boost chicken McNuggets, Dole Fresh Fruits, Sunkist, Blue Diamond, Gallo Wines, Tyson, Pillsbury, which is owned by the British, and so on and on. Vast amounts. Well, is it any wonder that uh, others have gotten into this act? Almost every major league team in baseball is now putting the taxpayer into debt because increasingly the sports arenas the, uh, for baseball, football, are built with taxpayers' funds. So debt has become the means to instant paradise. And anyone who doesn't get into debt is regarded as antiquated in their perspective. So we live in a time of skyrocketing debt when uh, people are actually uh, going about. They have corporations that go about in search of companies to buy out to increase their indebtedness and to um, make into a totally different entity than it was before. So debt has become a way of life. And uh, it's a way of life for the federal government, for the uh, corporations, for sports, for the average person. I hear from time to time of uh, young couples who owe as much as 15000 thousand to twenty thousand on their credit cards and the companies are content to let them go as long as they keep paying the interest the huge sum so we live in an ungodly world radically dedicated to debt and in effect asking for judgment and defying God and man and ridiculing anyone who opposes debt. <clears throat> Douglas, would you like to comment on the subject now? Well, the, you alluded earlier to the, uh, the divine uh, status that the government has put itself in. We have a divine right of the Federal Reserve. Yes. Uh, <coughs> Federal Reserve has set themselves up on an Olympian uh, hilltop, and uh, they have become a power unto themselves. Uh, although they do, during an election year, tip their hat to whoever's in the White House, <coughs> uh, they uh, generally loosen rates just before the election. But uh, uh, you have the insane situation where the Federal Reserve tells you how much interest you're going to be paid on the debt that, you're, that the federal government incur incurs. 
and uh, nobody in the United States or a very, uh, very small proportion of the uh, U.S. Treasury bonds are purchased by uh, U.S. firms. Uh, they buy junk bonds because they get a higher rate of return. And it's foreign governments that buy U.S. Treasury bonds, and it's mainly distributed among the uh, industrialized, the seven industrialized countries. And uh, there's an interlocking purchase agreement um, between the industrialized countries to buy each other's debt. So it's it's a shell game. Uh, you buy my debt, I'll buy your debt, you buy his debt, and they just go around the the seven, and uh, it's it's a peace shell game. However, because the United States economy is uh, so huge compared to the other uh, G7 countries, if we hiccup, uh, they get pneumonia. And uh, I've seen recently where financial analysts predict that any more insults to the world economy, such as uh, Italy is supposed to be on the brink of, of uh, going under, because Italy really is split into two separate countries, two, two countries now, uh, from an economic standpoint. The uh, manufacturing north and the, the south, which is virtually one huge welfare state and uh, if it goes down or another big bank goes down such as the Barings Bank uh, that will pretty much be the end of the game uh, the US stock market is now something like uh, a normal price earnings ratio would be 15 to 1 and right now it's 50 to 1 now the Japanese got up to the 50 to 1 area and uh, their stock market caved in and they lost half the equity of the stock market uh, on the uh, Japanese exchange. Uh, the uh, people who had uh, huge real estate debt were forced to liquidate properties that they purchased in the United States. Um, that caused prices to drop over here. Uh, they liquidating property in Japan, which forced prices down there. Uh, their stock market dropped by 50% and the bubble broke. Well, we're due. And uh, I think when that happens, that the other industrialized countries will no longer want to purchase our debt. Then how do we finance the deficit? Uh, the insurance companies, the um, mutual funds, uh, they don't want to buy uh, U.S. paper because it doesn't produce enough in income to attract more people to the shell game to buy mutual fund stock. <coughs> so the uh, domestic, there are no domestic buyers and there's no foreign buyers and that's the end of the game. And at that point, foreign governments will no longer accept U.S. dollars in payment for foreign exchange. So it's a complicated issue which uh, few of a very small percentage of the people in this country are even aware of it or even care about it. But uh, when uh, we have a depression, and you can have one of two kinds, you can either have, you can either go over the cliff with your foot on the brake, which is a deflationary <coughs> depression, or you can go over the cliff with your foot on the accelerator, 
which is an inflationary depression, but you still go over the cliff. <coughs> and uh, whatever you have, you either have no money, uh, can't get at it, uh, the, the banks will, as they did in the depression in the 30s, the banks close. And as we've seen in the recent past, when banks in the East uh, became insolvent, people couldn't get at their money for six months. <coughs> and nobody seems to react to this. They think it's an isolated circumstance that only happens to the other guy. Well, they think the federal government will always be able to guarantee their money. That's their. Well, the federal government has gone from. <laughs> has gone from uh, uh, bailing out corporations in the United States, now they're bailing out whole countries. Oh, yes. Well, if there's another default the size of Mexico, which all Mexico did was try to steal 15% of the equity of that investors had invested in, in Mexico, but uh, what they uh, misjudged was that now with electronic transfers, uh, you can get out very quickly. And most of these investment houses, they have cell stops already built into their into their trading programs, and the computers make the decisions for them. The decisions are pre-made and executed with lightning fast speed. So it's pretty difficult for political entities to steal anymore because it's tough to beat the computers. <coughs> so the debt bubble is, I feel, is very, very close to breaking, and it's going. it could happen any time. It could happen in a matter of days. I remember in 1987, um, uh, in October of 1987, I was watching the market very closely because I was invested in mutual funds. And uh, I was uh, trading using a 39-week average, and I saw the average about... Ten days to two weeks before the crash, I saw the average head down, start to head down with a vengeance. And uh, the, the, uh, my system issued a, an automatic cell signal or a, a built-in cell signal about two days, uh, about on Wednesday of the, yeah. of, uh, the week where uh, the market went down. But that's how fast it can happen. Now, my brother, he didn't get out. He wrote it down. And you know, we had to try to get well on the other side. Uh, but I found it very difficult. I started on uh, Wednesday afternoon to call uh, uh, the mutual fund. I won't mention the name, but a very, very large firm. And uh, they had a lot of funds. And it was 3 o'clock in the morning. And I was using an automatic dialer that dialed every few seconds. And it was continuously dialing about every 10 to 15 seconds. You know, it would disconnect, reconnect, and dial automatically. It was 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And I felt very fortunate to get through and be able to sell, to liquidate my position. But that's, uh, and that was just, that wasn't really a, a, a crash. It was a correction in the market, what they call a correction in the market. People call it a crash. It's nowhere near the kind of loss of equity that the Japanese uh, lost. We lost something like 10% of the equity in the U.S. market in October of 1987. The Japanese lost 50%. And then the Depression, they lost 30 or 40%. And it happens very quickly. And when it happens, you can't get your money out. So that's what debt bubbles, that's how fast debt bubbles can break. Could you explain what that was? <laughs> Joanna didn't want to. 
I can't report that one. You're caught. Well, Andrew, we'll hear from you. Uh, well, can stop coughing. They've already heard from me. Uh, yeah. I apologize. This is Andrew uh, Stanley, and I've been coughing the whole time. Andrew and I have the misfortune of getting summer colds. And uh, a cold is bad news any time, but the summer, I think, is the worst. Yes. Uh, Douglas is... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Andrew. Uh, Douglas is... <clears throat> dealt with the, how can we say it, macroeconomic matter. Let's bring it down to the individual and families, and let's spark a discussion here and deal with a somewhat sacrosanct issue. What problems do 30-year mortgages pose? Uh, Rush, for years you have <clears throat> invaded against, uh, and justifiably so, these uh, very long-term mortgages. Uh, let's talk about the problems that they pose for individuals and for families. Would anybody like, anybody like to start that uh, discussion? Well, just from a financial standpoint, they're great if you're at the beginning or the middle of a, an inflationary period. If you catch it at the end of an inflationary period, yeah. you're in big trouble. In California, our economy is worse than in most areas of the country. Um, there are people in the Sacramento area who have lost 25 percent to 35 percent of the value of their homes. Some of these people bought in the <coughs> mid-80s and are now selling their homes at a loss, uh -huh. and they're coming away from selling their homes still in debt. And uh, we know somebody whose factory closed uh, just about an hour from here, <coughs> sold their property, and uh, considered it a long-term investment but ended up owing money. And, uh, that, that's becoming more and more common. And uh, when the debt bubble bursts, you, you're left holding the bag. Well, the difference is that you know, 200 years ago, if, if you were in debt and couldn't pay your debt, you went to prison. Today, you go see an attorney, he files personal bankruptcy, and uh, within five years, you can go back and, or if you want to take an assumed name, as a lot of people do, they create a new identity, go to one of the, the identity mills, and uh, they start the debt spiral all over again. They can get credit cards. It's amazing. You, if, you're, right. if you live in one place for 90 days and you got a job, you can buy a new car, you can get credit cards. I mean, they're more than willing to start you on the, on the same road to destruction again. But there are no consequences. The problem is that our system has removed the consequences, and people now play the game. It's a gamble. It's just, as far as they're concerned, it's like buying a lottery ticket. I hear somebody say, why be debt-free when credit's so cheap? I mean, let's just go out and go into debt. You know, I believe in most states, lenders are now required by law to disclose to borrowers that when the loan is amortized, um, how much eventually they'll be paying back. I think if people would sit down and recognize... Oftentimes, for a, for a mere fifty thousand dollar home, which you really can scarcely get in California, you can in some places back east. You'll end up paying back one hundred and fifty thousand dollars, three hundred thousand dollar home, a million dollars of in interest of God's money if you're a Christian. And let's look at, at why people go into thirty year mortgages with low down payments. Uh, the obvious answer would be to to have a home. Well, that's usually about at least the third reason. One, it's been considered an inflation hedge. 
that it's kind of it's too for, it's for many many years in the 50s 60s 70s it was a foolproof inflation hedge you were guaranteed to be able to sell that house at a higher price it was an inflation hedge and a tax deduction those two reasons alone made it very attractive because frankly there are a lot of advantages to renting it's somebody else everything is somebody else's problem and somebody else has to fix the roof somebody else has to take paint the house somebody else has to do all that if you rent there are a lot of uh, advantages to buying or to renting but home ownership has been part of the of the debt game where people assumed that they were going to be able to beat inflation if they couldn't imbe- beat it in their personal finances and their bank accounts and their savings accounts and their investment strategy at least they felt they could beat it by owning a house so it was considered <coughs> urgent and fortunately i see a lot of young people today who still feel that urgency yes, to right. buy a house and they haven't been listening to the news reports in California for the last couple of years that real estate prices are going down and people are selling right. at losses. And that's very scary that people think that they the game, they don't realize the game has changed a little bit. That's well, right. They're trying to play the same game that their parents played. You know, their parents bought a home right after World War II, uh, you know, the, the baby boom boomer generation uh, home interest rate was like 3% you know, GI loans and CalVet loans were 6% and so forth and they wrote it up and they they sold a $15,000 home for $60,000 and uh, they they think they made money but what they didn't look at was that the purchasing value of the dollars dropped by that That's amount right. too so that was a wash uh, but there's there, you know the politicians talk about the loss of the American dream, the American dream of buying a home, and uh, it becomes your principal asset. Well, that, that's no longer a given. That's right. That's the the American dream is the dream of being able to run up a big debt, you know, to to acquire a large debt and come out winners, and uh, that's that's no there's no guarantee to that any longer. I think one of the tragedies of debt is that we're we consider ourselves a capitalistic country, okay? But capitalism is the private ownership of wealth, which means requires the accumulation of wealth, the right. accumulation of savings. That's right. Inflation makes that impossible. That's right. So we've destroyed the whole basis of our economy. We've destroyed the character-building um, elements of savings and thrift. Thrift doesn't make any sense if if saving something means be worthless tomorrow. So we have right. had several generations who have grown up with the idea of don't save it, enjoy it. Because it's going to be worthless in the future and, if you do and, save it. So. And in a sense, they're right. You've got to do something with your money. Well, And in business, it's make a buck. Make, make a, a buck, buck make a buck, right. make a buck. That's right. It's not long-term investment in capital, in equipment. Uh, planning for the long term, planning for five, ten years, it's make a buck now. Well, and if you right. can't make yeah. a buck, sell off. CEOs right. live or die on the quarterly reports now, whereas they used to have five-year plans of investment and, and yeah. uh, research and development, and that's a thing of the past. And that's, that's why you have so many professional business managers, because but they're good, they're, they get in, make a buck, and but they we have on. to be clear on the reason. The reason is the government has imposed its will on the marketplace, and it, it's controlling the game. Uh, the discretionary decision-making on the part of CEOs of corporations, uh, they're simply sheep herders. Uh, they really don't make... <laughs> 
uh, decisions except when to merge. You know, when it's good for the uh, the shareholders, uh, including themselves, to, uh, to either be bought out by another firm or merge with another firm to the advantage of the stockholders. But that's about all they do anymore. Uh, you know, they come and go. It's a revolving door. They're in and out. Uh, you read the financial pages, and you know they're in and out, and three months here, six months there, a year there, and they get paid huge salaries because they're like sports figures. They have a very short performance life, so they got to make a lot of money in a short period of time, just like sports figures have a useful shelf life of maybe ten years, and then they're over the hill. Because the with the CEOs. Their knowledge becomes obsolete, just like engineers today. The technology in many areas is moving so fast that uh, they don't have any new ideas. By the time they pass 35 years old, they have nothing, little or nothing more to contribute in the way of new products and new ideas. So they're shoved aside. So it's a, it's a, it, it, our industry devours itself. We devour people, we devour capital, and. Um, the debt is just killing us. That's right. I'd like to call attention briefly to the moral effect of debt. This is not considered as much as it should. But if you are in debt, your orientation is to the past That's and to right. the present. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You're governed by what you've done in the past because then you decided that for the present you needed these things. It takes away the future orientation from a society. And future orientation is remarkably lacking in our culture. Most people cannot think ahead very far in their daily life. They don't plan ahead. They think short-term because they live short-term. Absolutely. And this has a devastating effect on moral character. Historically, what is made for the advancement of a culture is the fact that people have the character to work and to save because they are future-oriented. Delayed gratification. Yes, delayed gratification. And that is true of a decreasing element in the society. So we have a serious problem. Now we can say that in part, a large part, it is due to the federal government and its inflationary policies. But these policies are dictated by the demands of the people for more and more goods and services. As a result, they push the federal government and the state governments into spending an ever-increasing amount, even at the same time as they complain about federal and state extravagance. Uh, One of the uh, interesting things is uh, uh, among voters that they expect to vote for Clinton will be people on Social Security because they have this childlike <laughs> self-delusion that Clinton is somehow going to be able to maintain the, the uh, present payout rate on Social Security 
And um, when everybody agrees that it's going to go broke, uh, they apparently are not future-oriented because they don't care what's going to happen to their children. They're going to be saddled with enormous taxes. They predict 80% tax rate uh, on this next generation. And uh, it's going to go broke anyway. That's right. Even if they took 100%. they cannot meet the the uh, uh, servicing the national debt and continue the, continue the payouts on Medicare and Social Security. So uh, the people who should be acting responsibly uh, are acting irresponsibly uh, by uh, condemning their children to. Uh, an even greater debt and financial ruin. In other words, they don't care what's going to happen to their kids as long as they get theirs. And it's mm-hmm. a, it's a it's a brutal uh, way to look at things. Right. Brutal perspective. They really don't care about their children. But we, you were touched on earlier on a savings rate, and I'm always uh, get a chuckle out of these sanctimonious politicians that get on the television and radio and decry the fact that we have the lowest savings rate in the world. What's the incentive to save? That's right. You know, you go to countries, other countries, uh, Japan has one of the highest savings rates in the world, and that's probably what's saving them. There's enough money in the banks to keep them from, otherwise they would have crashed. I'm sure that Japan would have had a terrible, terrible crash when their stock market went down, had it not been for their high savings rate. Yeah, there's no incentive to we, save. We don't have that so. cushion. Our banks are resting on a foundation uh, totally of debt. And uh, when our system goes under, it's going to crash into the dust. There's going to be no savings pillow to hold them up. Well, let's talk about pietism and debt. I have heard the most super pious excuses for debt on the part of churches. A number of them in the 70s actually went into receivership and bankruptcy because they borrowed on speculated income. The church is growing at a remarkable rate. And we're expecting to have thousands, you know, five years down the road, so they were willing to go into heavy debt. And they often do it under the guise of, and this is especially repugnant, to living by faith. Of course, they're totally wrong. It takes just as much faith to save the money beforehand for God to provide than it does to trust Him to make the payments later. But they obviously don't think that way. But a large part of the evangelical church, and not just the evangelical church, uh, is saddled with debt because of this sort of super pious mentality by which it's okay to go into debt and into um, very questionable uh, speculation uh, precisely because we're doing it for the work of the Lord. We want to be able to blame God when the plan goes sour. Well, some of them say, let's just run up our credit card debt because the... uh, the rapture is going to come soon, and the Antichrist, this great figure, will get our... I've actually heard some of them say that. The Antichrist will be getting our debt, so let's all run up our credit card bills and give the money to foreign missions, mm-hmm. which is a total affront to God, yes. in spite of the fact that they're doing it for uh, super pious reasons. Mm-hmm. But this whole mentality really pervades modern, uh, modern Christianity. Deuteronomy 28 promises debtor status to the disobedient, So I guess we could conclude that uh, the modern church, for the most part, has been very disobedient because um, the modern church and modern American society is in debt. Alternatively, it promises 
the uh, blessings of creditor status to those who are obedient. And uh, we will know things have changed when Bible-believing Christians are lending to sinners and covenant breakers rather than borrowing from them. Yeah. Well, the whole subject of debt gets to the heart of the modern world because, as I mentioned earlier, our McMaster has called what we have today not historic capitalism, but debt capitalism. That's right. That means you live off the future to create something for the present. Historically, capitalism has built for the future. Now it's the reverse. Well, it's, it's stealing from the future. Yes. It's theft. Well, we need to point out that secular capitalism is no better than secular socialism. Yes, very There good. are a lot of libertarian people, and a lot of times the libertarian critiques are quite sound, but ultimately libertarianism, as you have pointed out a number of times, Rush, ultimately libertarianism, secular libertarianism, fails because uh, personal economics, micro and macroeconomics, have to be governed by the word of God. And a free market economy that is not governed by the Christian faith is no better than, than socialism. And people like Solzhenitsyn and others have pointed that out. They've rendered a stinging indictment against the United States because he, he pointed out that the... Um, uh, the socialists were materialists, secular materialists, envious materialists, and, well, so are the secular capitalists. Mm -hmm. Well, we are facing economic catastrophe with a, the major part of the Christian community head over heels in debt. And because they think it's a matter of faith. A few years ago, the, uh, evidence seemed to indicate that Christians were more in debt than uh, their non-Christian neighbors because as evangelicals, many of them felt that it was a matter of faith, of trusting in God to plunge into debt. Or they're denying the commandment of Deuteronomy about presumption. Of course, yes. Satan himself came to Christ with that uh, temptation. Yes. And God despises that. We don't need to be, quote, spiritual, as you've pointed out, Rush. We need to be obedient to the law word of God rather than appearing to be spiritual. Even if we don't have new church buildings and new homes and new automobiles all the time. Well, we're seeing this in a number of ways. Uh, I hesitate to go into this, but uh, I have seen conferences put on for worthy Christian causes without any funds. And then the audience held in the auditorium at the conclusion until they came through with the 9,000 or the 11,000 or whatever it is that was needed to uh, conclude the conference or else holding a conference and then uh, telling the speakers that uh, we uh, cannot pay you 
because we have to pay the hotel. But uh, we know you are ready to donate your services for the Lord, which uh, is very presumptuous, and yet this is very common when you're dealing with evangelicals. That's corrupt and it's sinful. Yes. And it's, you're right, Rush, it's not faith, it's presumption. They're, they're governed by their own feelings and their own desire for instant gratification rather than by the law of God. They get away with it because it's done under a guise of spirituality. But it's Well, not. one of the things that offends me is to go somewhere to speak and uh, you go to the home of one of the leaders of the group magnificent home beautiful and uh, you're very happy to see that uh, God's people are prospering and two new cars uh, out in front and uh, everything uh, superb only you later find out from another source that they're head over heels in debt they are skating on thin ice that uh, they may, a few years ago they were doing this, sell it off to make a profit in order to move on because they've reached a dead end there and start the whole game all over again. And I'm ashamed to say it, but Bible-believing Christians tend to lead in this kind of absurdity. I, for a time in the early 80s, attended a national group made up of a variety of peoples, and uh, Dorothy noticed that the clergyman came uh, very much as lords of creation and their wives had the most expensive gowns and hairdos that were sensational. I've seen this before, Rush. Yes, I know what you're talking about. So, the evangelical community has really much to answer for because it has abandoned God's Word. They claim to believe in the Bible from cover to cover, but they pay no attention to what both the Old and the New Testaments have to say about debt. Oh, no man anything save to love one another, Paul said. And this is sin. There's no other word for it. It's no reason that the Christian community has less and less influence in this country. It has no character. It is immoral. There's no other word for it because it treats God's word as something it can go to and pick and choose what it wants. Right. So they like to pick texts that tell them they're going to heaven, but not texts that tell them this do and live. Yes. To rush debt precludes biblical giving. One reason yes. that the organizations, good Christian organizations like Chalcedon, good churches, so forth, uh, have great difficulties is because God's people, or those that profess to be God's people, have already committed uh, pre-committed income to debt. And 
they would like to send money, but we can't because we've gone into debt. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think if Christians got out of debt and uh, would tithe as they're supposed yeah. to, I know of many Christians that, that cannot, which is to say will not, tithe precisely because they're in debt. They need to realize they're in debt first to God. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Something I think, uh, I wonder about sometimes that uh, I really don't know where to begin is when this bubble of debt collapses, whether it's inflationary, deflationary, however it occurs when the, when this economic crisis catches up to us, um, what's going to happen? I mean, financially, politically, there's going to be upheaval. Socially, back in the Depression, people tended to move to the cities because that's where they could look for work. The cities already aren't safe. There's a large element in the cities that are predators, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. it could get very ugly in the cities this time around. Well, uh, there's some lessons to be learned from the uh, 1930s. Yes. I just finished a book uh, that was written by a retired local newspaper man, George Hooper, and he told a story that was uh, told to him by a man and his wife who survived during the 1930s by... Uh, going out and panning for gold on the streams. Now, it all sounds very glamorous, but it's very hard work. They lived in a tent. Uh, very interesting book, by the way. And uh, it's called Bacon and Beans from a Gold Pan. Yes. And, uh, but there you saw classic economics at work. In other words, labor was expended to get the gold, it wasn't very much. They made somewhere between a dollar and three dollars a day, and that was, that was good wages. But they were able to buy their basic foodstuffs and basic requirements and stay, uh, and stay independent. Uh, they were, uh, of course they didn't, you know, their living expenses were rather low, but uh, it was classic economics at work. People today think that the laws of economics are somehow different or apart from the laws of God. The laws of economics are the laws of That's God. Right. They're not Absolutely. mutually exclusive. Are they still living? They were in uh, nearby San Andreas a few years ago still. Yeah, no, the, the coffees, uh, the couple involved are gone, but George Hooper's still alive. He's still living in San Andreas. Mm-hmm. I liked, uh, if I might digress a bit, the story he was warned by somebody if he were panning not to go to this particular point on this particular stream because there's quite a nest of rattlesnakes there. So you remember that? He immediately headed for that spot, told his wife to be ready with her twenty-two to kill the snakes whenever they appeared and found a great deal of gold there because nobody had wanted to go there. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) That was good entrepreneurial thinking. Right. You know, it may not be enough to be out of debt because a chain reaction, especially if people owe you money and you're depending upon that, in hard times, they may not be able to come up with the money. And so a businessman who is out of debt may go out of business if people owe him money. Uh, the people who made off like bandits in the Depression, as I understand it, are people who had capital, who had savings. 
in hard assets that they could hang on to. They actually accumulated what other people had to divest themselves of. Well, it's the, the, the great fable was uh, in 1929, uh, Joe Kennedy Sr. and uh, Bernard Baruch uh, foresaw the crash of the market. They, they knew a speculative bubble when they saw one. And they got out and they cashed out while the rest of these guys were jumping out of the sixth floor window. And uh, <clears throat> within a few months, they were able to pick up enormously valuable assets for 10 cents on the dollar. And that's how they got rich. But uh, not everybody was that knowledgeable about how the market uh, worked. Well, I know a few people who when young, lived through the Depression. And when they went into business after the war, they did it on a strictly cash basis. Mm -hmm. Their competitors were offering credit and uh, doing land office business. But when the Carter years hit with all their economic storm and stress, and the ups and downs of the economy since then. In many instances, their competitors went out of business and they thrived because of their cash-only basis. Well, you know, the reason was is that the rate of inflation was 14%. And, uh, you know, like the, uh, rather the, uh, the, uh, the rate of uh, increase uh, of the uh, interest rates were going up very rapidly and if you owed money uh, if you took a while to pay it then the guy that you owed it to was losing money because uh, he had to subtract that time value of That's the right. money from, from the net amount that he was supposed to be paid so everybody slowed down paying their bills I was in business uh, uh, down in the Bay Area during the 60s and 70s and um, uh, when I bought the business, the uh, the fellow who, proprietor of the business uh, that I bought it from, he had had open accounts to people. And uh, when the rate of inflation started to pick up, my banker warned me. He says, "Get on a strict cash basis." Absolutely. And so I cut out all of that, uh, you know, thirty, sixty, ninety day stuff because it'll kill you. And a lot of businesses went under because uh, they couldn't. They simply couldn't collect their accounts receivable. In fact, yeah. it became a roaring business for a while of selling your accounts receivable to professional collection companies. And you, and you took a you took a loss when you did. You had to discount it. Times of inflation, debtors make out like bandits, of course, and creditors yes. lose. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> that's one reason that inflation is so evil. I want to put in a plug here for Rush's book, The Roots of Inflation. That book had a remarkable impact on my life. I hope that you'll obtain it from Ross House Books. It's outstanding. Thank you, Andrew. It's not a very successful book. <laughs> it's, it's because it's, it's news people don't want to hear. Yes. Incidentally, I apparently I've heard a couple things on the television that apparently the uh, talk shows are have been beaten to death and and they're on their way out and they're being replaced by another round of game shows. Mm. And one of the game shows that's coming this fall is called Debt. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you can win win money and 
with which they will pay off your debts. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I heard that, Mark, come to think of it, yeah. And the IRS will be there before any of your debtors or creditors. The IRS knows not to be too generous with debtors because if you owe the IRS money, boy, they attach those fees and penalties and it's... I, I suppose when you're in trouble with the IRS, it's some people never recover from it. A lot of people never they, recover they from have, it. But they, you, they have to file personal bankruptcy. But you know, the IRS has gone through such difficulties in getting money that they've, in many cases, been willing to settle for cents on the dollar. Uh, not with everybody, but with uh, a number of people, because they've had trouble recovering money, of course. <clears throat> well, I think in a not too distant time the subject of debt is going to be more than academic That's it's right. going to be so urgently important that those who are in debt are going to be in great fear because the, the chickens will come home to roost it'll be a hurricane It'll be a hurricane, yes. The only people are going to be in the eye of the hurricane are the people who don't owe. Well, if people simply obey God's word, no long-term debt, no more than six years indebtedness on anything, and as a general premise, owe no man anything save to love one another, then we will have a different society. If only 10% of those who claim to believe the Bible would adopt this premise and apply it, it would have a revolutionary impact on the country. And yet, they're not willing to do it, which means they are not ready to believe in God. They only want to believe in what God offers them, not what God requires of them. Absolutely. And the result is that we have a crisis today, not only economically and culturally, but religiously. God's people, so-called, are not taking the word of God seriously. That's right. Is there anything any of you would like to add as a final note before we conclude? Well, Rush, you've said a number of times that if we're Christians... Everything that we have belongs to God. Our money is God's. Therefore, we cannot do with our money as we would. It belongs to the Lord, and therefore we cannot use it for long-term debt. It is His. Very good. Anyone have el anything else? Just that no, I tell my students at school, when they're begging you to go into debt, and commercials are begging you to go into debt, you have to realize they have something to gain or they wouldn't be urging you to do it. That's right. And uh, nobody does you a favor by helping you go into debt. Right. Well, interesting, lately the television has been full of inducements. No down payment, no interest, nothing for 18 months. Yes. Oh, what a corrupt idea. Yes. Oh, what's, what's even what's very scary is I see there's a heavy promotion on in the last few years about taking the equity from your house and getting an equity line oh, of credit. Yes, absolutely. So if you have some equity, even inflationary equity in your house, 
you can use that very easily. Well, that game is the uh, savings and loan and the banks want to improve the, the uh, uh, value of their uh, portfolios, you know, get out of commercial property, which was going down. So that's where they started that program. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you. <laughs>